I was in awe of the energy from hip hop, you know, from the time I was in the playgrounds watching the DJs outside and just the graffiti on the streets, you know, it was an expression. The self-expression is what I fell in love with and the anti-establishment factor of that, you know, of what was happening with this our system and it was a broken system. I was really clear on that. And then you had this um, voice for the hoods across the world that was hip hop and it was just telling our stories. So it was really an exciting time. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. The people at Gray have a long history of creating famously effective ideas. And so with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creative minds from all corners of life how they came up with their best ideas. And that's what matters for Gray Matter. Welcome to season three. On this episode of Gray Matter, we'll stitch together cultural influences and discuss how passion is the needle that pulls the thread of creativity. Hi, I'm John Petrolis, Worldwide Chief Creative Officer at Gray. This week's idea is the iconic fashion brand Walkerware and I was honored to talk to the founder and creative visionary behind the brand, April Walker. I spoke with April about her inspiration, how she started the brand, managed the business, and her story of growing up in Brooklyn, dressing some of the biggest names in hip hop, sports, and culture. People like Biggie, Tupac, Jay-Z, and Mike Tyson. April was the first woman to break into the men's urban wear industry when she opened up her shop, Fashion in Effect, out of her home in 1987. A year later, while studying at New Pulse, she moved her business to a physical store at the age of 20. Walkerware launched in 1990 and throughout the decade became iconic for its jeans with baggy fit, drop pockets, and were the perfect complement to Timberland boots. Due to oversaturation in the market, Walker chose to end Walkerware in 1998, soon followed by the collapse of the urban fashion scene. And in 2007, April became the CEO and president of A. Walker Group, LLC, a creative consulting company based in Brooklyn. And in 2013, relaunched the Walkerware brand you see today. April is an incredibly humble and giving mentor. She teaches a workshop to high school students called BYOB, Be Your Own Brand, and is the author of Walker Gems, Get Your Ass Off the Couch. She was featured in films like Fresh Dressed and the award-winning documentary, The Remix, Hip Hop and Fashion, and she's a contributor to the Streetwear Essentials program at Parsons. She's an amazing person. This is April Walker. But I am a diehard Brooklyn person. I landed in Brooklyn, actually. Many don't know I'm from Los Angeles originally. I was born in L.A. My father was in the music industry. Um, we were nomads very early on. So we moved from here, from, from L.A., to New York, to Boston, and then back to New York, and finally landed in Brooklyn very early. And so my sister, I have three sisters. One was born in Roxbury, one was born in Harlem Hospital, and I was born in LA. So um, my father, we grew up in, well, I grew up in the 70s. So, like, I can remember as far back as the 70s, uh, and it was a very different time in Brooklyn than it is now. You know, it looked very different. It felt very different. And then some of it still feels the same. But 
you know, it was during a time, it was post-civil rights, it was the Nixon era, it was Vietnam, it was a lot of different things happening. And so that energy was in the air as well. It was a time of change. It was also a time of oppression. It was also a time of, um, you know, a lot of social injustices that were occurring, the same things we're dealing with now, you know? And so that was all a part of my landscape growing up. I can remember growing up as a jazz baby. My father loved jazz. So I grew up like in the back stages of jazz clubs and woke up at one o'clock in the morning. My father managed McCoy Tyner and Gary Bartz and a lot of these guys. So, you know, um, Jackie McLean, Renee McLean, all, all of a lot of greats, a lot of greats. And so that was my world. So fortunately, I was you know, my eyes were open to art, to culture, to museums. He had a, he had three girls. He had us in dance lessons, you know, music lessons, voice lessons. And I can't sing at all. But all of these things, he had all of his girls doing all the time. So there was little idle time. Mm. Saturdays were our chore days. You know, we grew up as a family. And so we grew up with uh, these values, but it also was a lot of hard work early on. And as a Blexican kid in Bed-Stuy, it wasn't the easiest explaining to people what I was composed of, you know, and and all of these things in Brooklyn were part of the shaping of the magic right now. But then it, it was rough, you know, and it was tough some days. So Brooklyn was my canvas artistically. It became the canvas. It was like listening to the music and the music was transcending because now we go from the 70s to the 80s. And when we got into the 80s, it started being like um, disco, right? 70s, the late 70s early 80s, you had disco, you had R&B that followed the disco. And then you had this fusion and this big breakthrough of hip hop. It was already kind of like 70s, late 70s popping. But by the 80s, the spirit of entrepreneurship was clear and hip hop was really becoming this commercially viable entity. Yes. You know, that's basically how I came up and I don't even remember what your question was, but that's how it started. <laughs> that was the question. It's a great answer <laughs> and, a, and a great story. And and it leads you to a moment. You know, we talk this, obviously in this podcast, we're always talking about ideas, how people came up with their best ideas and and a lot of um, themes start to emerge. And I feel like you you hit on one is the the, the amalgamation of experiences that you had in your family life, in your exposure to music and culture, maybe I'm interested in the the genres that you mentioned, jazz, disco, R&B, before hip hop, mm-hmm. all also had a fashion sense tied to it. Absolutely. There's a look, I mean, jazz, but but going through those and how, as, as you were exposed and interested in those, how, what big a role, how big of a role did the fashion of those genres play on you? Were you interested in that as well? It played a huge, huge uh, role in terms of inspiration because it really was a canvas in New York City, period. New York City is a melting pot for flavor, period. And it's probably one of the only places in the world that you can go and 
conformity is frowned upon versus, you know, I'm talking about when it comes to the way you look, right? Everybody is an individual. When you go outside, you can see that artistic expression and no one is judging it, right? And so that's that's inspiration in itself, right? You can see punk beats. I remember like punk rock, like downtown Julie Brown and Lower East Side meets the surfers meets, you know, the, the skateboarders meets um, hip hop meets. It was so much um, culture, the intersection of culture, especially during that time, it was bubbling and brewing and everybody was just this exchange of ideas. So in that you were having that same of ex- exchange of ideas in fashion. And we really, it was really art on clothes or like ripping up and deconstructing things to express yourself, which became fashion, you know, making statements, whether you're sewing on letters or, you know, saying you're from a certain crew. Yeah. You know, you know, remember crews. So all of these things, but skating was a big part of my uh, 80s life. And I learned how to skate and at Empire Rolling rolling rink in Brooklyn. And that skating rink is legendary, was legendary, but I can remember I got a lot of fashion there, a lot of fashion. You know, it was amazing. Roxy's, the club Roxy's in Manhattan, that's another spot, you know. But, you know, Fun House, Disco Fever, Bonds International, Zanzibar, all of these places had very different Bentleys, Silver Shadow, all different kind of audiences in all different kinds of fashion. So you were just absorbing. It, I was like a sponge. And then, you know, going to the village, that was just something we love to do. Just walk down 8th Street. You could get so much fashion there and flavor and different kind of people. And it was just Washington Square Park hanging out in there. That's another whole thing, you know. So it was all over the place. New York was the canvas and I was just soaking it up. You know, this is an era of New York that I wasn't here for and I hear... Everyone loves it. The anyone that was here for right. it was such an exciting time. But I would love to talk about the fact that you were living in it. As you said, you were a sponge. You were absorbing it. But a lot of people were here having that mm-hmm. experience, but they did not then turn that into something. But clearly you were sparked because at a very young age, you said there's a spirit of entrepreneurship in the air. But again, not everyone started a business. Not everyone got something going. And you were pretty young when you when you first started I can say it, fashion and effect. And I would just love to hear what what gave you that idea and what was the the trigger for you to to start something? Huh. I think that early on when I was in high school, I knew I didn't want to work for someone else for the rest of my life. That was clear. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know what it would be. So I basically was on the journey. I think that in hindsight, watching my father dance to his own beat, literally mm-hmm. making music, um, having a home studio. Um, he worked with, when I was in high school, he was working with jazz and Jay-Z and he managed D-Train and all these interesting characters coming in and out. I don't, I didn't realize it at the time, the impact that had on me, but I think between that and just being 
against the grain naturally. Yes. I, I knew I didn't want to work for someone else. I remember being in college at a job at American Express and it was, you know, um, in the city corporate and it was one of those move up the ladder places. And there was a woman that I admired that sat next to me. Her name was Melanie. And she was, she was so fly. And she was telling me, you see him, he's been here 16 years. She was telling me how good of a job this is. She was like, he's been here 16 years. This one's been here 18 years. That one's, you know, the manager's 27 years. And, and it just sounded like, oh my God, I got to get out of here. You know what I mean? Cause I see it. I see You're it right now. This will, that's what I saw clearly. Like this is how it happened. So that didn't last long. And I had little bouts in between, but I can remember as far back as being maybe 12 and starting teaching gymnastics lesson and then when lessons. And then when I was in high school, we used to do, we used to go to the wholesale district and buy like linen suits and silk suits and buy all this fashion wholesale. And then I'd take it to everyone's job on payday and then sell them. You know, this is in high school, down to pots and pans. So I always had a hustle. I didn't know it would end up being fashion. You know what I mean? That's literally how it started. One day I walked in Dapper Dan's and I walked in Dapper Dan's and I saw this hustler hustling fashion, you know, and it was it was our culture. It was everything I was already in love with. I knew, you know, I'd, I hadn't owned fashion, but I was winning awards in school for like best best dress and stuff. But, you know, we run from the things that come easiest to us sometimes. Yes. So it was at that moment. It was an aha moment. Like we don't have anything in Brooklyn that really expresses who we are or, you know, for the culture per se. And we couldn't buy anything like that in the stores. There was nothing there for us. So literally that's the, that, that at that moment, it was like this catalyst to say, you know, it was a moment in time when I said, I want to create for my tribe. And it was as simple as that. And, And I didn't, I didn't think it would be where we are, where we're sitting today to talk about this moment, but it started from the need an audience that was there that wasn't being served. And the fact that I knew that I could do this, but in our own way in Brooklyn, because Harlem and Brooklyn were very, very different places. And I didn't see that happening, but I saw my own thing. And so we just started success leaves clues, right? So we started, we had the print already, like we saw the blueprint, which was Dapper Dan. And so we made our own cutting table. And first I tried six months in my home. And then after I tried that, we had the proof of concept because people started asking for the stuff we were making. And eventually I took the Nestle's plunge, so to speak. And (laughs) I jumped off the ledge and I got my first lease with fashion in effect, which was at 212 Green Avenue. I convinced a poor soul to give me a space at 21 on a hope and a dream. I love what you just said. Again, when we talk about the world of ideas and the, the effect they can have on the world, you had absorbed all of your own influences. Like you said, you were a sponge, you were curious, 
you stepped in there and you saw, so you saw a little blueprint, but, but as you said, you made it your own. And when you started something, it was nothing, even though you, you had a path, you had an understanding, what you created was very unique to you and to the, to the world that you were, were creating for. And I think that is always, again, that's a theme that comes up a lot in this is people taking and understanding, but making it their own personal expression. Absolutely. I think that one thing that served me was being naive and being naive to fear. Mm. So coming into fashion, honestly, I reverse engineered because I went to school for communications and for business. I didn't know. I knew the fashion industry was very at that time. It still is very white, you know, whiteness, though, you know, because white and whiteness are two different things. And I think we have a hierarchy system in this country and that definitely elitist system is in the fashion industry. So I knew I I didn't, that part I I wanted no parts of. So I was almost um, selectively ignorant to paying attention to the fashion industry. It's a great phrase. Selectively ignorant is a great phrase. (laughs) Thank you. You know, I just didn't want to get the bug of feeling like I had to conform or have them validate our dopeness. Yes. So I stayed away from looking at trends. I knew about all of that stuff because I did my homework. I hired tailors and seamstresses and people that already knew more than me when I started. And so I was learning while I was building. And so that was important to me to surround myself by a team that knew how to hustle, that had the vision that I had, but also knew a lot more than I did. So, so that's how we started growing. It was teamwork. It's a very, it's also a very confident thing to that. Not everybody has the confidence when they're starting something or trying to see their idea come to life to confidently bring people on that might be better smarter, know something that you don't. Uh, it's a very confident thing. And I, I do believe people feed off that kind of confidence. So this team you surround yourself with probably was feeding off your vision and your confidence in your vision and also in them to do their thing and express what they wanted to express. I believe that. I always say energy feeds energy. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's uh, reciprocity, right? We it, it Once it hits the air, it just gets bigger than you. And I think that's that's what was the magic of fashion of, in effect. It was bigger than me. It was bigger than me just making this velour sweatsuit we started out. We started out with a lot of custom clothing, right? It was this seven-day-a-week business that we created that was way past nine to five. And you could get anything from a suit to a leather coat to um to velour, to we did a lot of working with terry cloth, all of these different fabrications. And that's where I learned about fabrics and custom and silhouettes and men and women, which were are very different cuts, especially then. We were moving into this time where men, we could do baggier because they were started, it was hip hop. So they were asking me for more crotch room or more leg room, or they wanted um, their bottoms of their jeans to fit inside the Timberland or right over the Timberland. So paying attention was really important too, because 
we kept hearing the same things over and over. And those things are what led us to to really take it to another level and start our rough and rugged suit, which was this heavyweight bull denim that we made, right? A lot of my inspiration was from workwear. I loved workwear. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it it had this very clean and crispy and durable look, but at the same time I wanted to make it fashion, right? And I wanted to make sure it was function because if you buy a piece, I want it to be timeless. I want you to think of it as a classic and I want it to be something that you can wear now or five or 10 years from now. So that was the thought process then. It still is, yes. you know, um, we do some fashion things now. We've hit two generations now. So, you know, we have um, a younger audience and now we have our customer just like hip hop. It's just multi-generational, right? Yes. But that's where it grew. Then it was just about creating these timeless pieces. And and so that stayed the heartbeat of the brand. But, you know, starting out, we wanted earth tones and muted colors and a lot of things we built around Timberlands too, because they were so important. Yes. Everyone, everyone was wearing them and Carhartts would have probably been showing up on the street a little bit. That's right. Carhartts and and Dickies. Yes, exactly. You know, those were my two, like when I look at those, points of those were two key influences for me. Probably mm-hmm. should do collabs with them at some point. Yeah, I was but say. yeah, that's what <laughs> yeah. that's we're talking. Yeah. I'm like, but they were so important to me. Yes. You know, being from LA, um, I traveled to LA a lot. We had an actual customer that was in LA with a detail shop and we would literally send them a lot of leather. And so we 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 had we had a we had a following in LA early on at Fashion and Effect. Mm-hmm. And that made me get on a plane and go out to L.A. And then I was like, oh, this is a whole world out here and it's different. And, you know, and then I think I had a natural affinity to it being from there, being born there. So it was these two very different places, but they both loved hip hop. Yes. Right. We were N.W.A. now. We're going into that whole moment. DJ Quick. So I was really like, I got to represent both in a very cool way. So that's where our coach jackets came in and these earth tones and muted colors and workwear inspired clothing that was fashionable. And so that's really was the balance and the ecosystem that was built around walkwear. And, and, and also contrast stitching because each yes. denim suit we did, we did a contrast. So either the contrast stitching went with the Timberland bull or the color of the bull denim. It was one or the other, but it was always a contrast stitching and oversized pockets, really big pockets. And then it had the illusion of having sagged pants, but we did not sag the pants. I want to make that clear. It was on the waist. What we did was drop the pockets lower and make them oversized. So it created that illusion. Were you the first to do that? You see, the people are still dropping pockets now. So you and you're mm-hmm. the person to drop those pockets. There you go. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about. So again, your influence in the hip hop was was the moment, and it was it was a culture, and music was at the center of it. But it was it was an entire culture. It strikes me, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. It strikes me at the time as a pretty male dominated culture. Um, there are certainly some women and some female rappers and acts, but 
that was a little more male driven at the time. And I imagine that the urban wear fashion scene, I'm going to guess was maybe male dominated, but you, please correct me if I'm wrong. So I, you know what I'm leading to is what was yeah. it like to mm-hmm. be a woman? What was it like to be an other in, right. in a moment like that? And to um, obviously your credibility was coming from your talent and your understanding of the culture, but I'm interested in what that process was like. So it wasn't easy. I'll, that's a, the simple answer. It was not easy. I think that what helped me was coming from Brooklyn during the 70s in a very difficult moment in time in history and living through adversity and being challenged there, being Blexican. Uh, I got a lot of my growing pains and, and my uh, beauty marks there, so to speak. Yeah, right. I and like then yeah. and then going into teenage years and then growing up in, in, in that time when hip hop was birthing, I was really like soaking up that energy, public enemy and all those guys. Right. And so so I already was fearless to to a fault, probably, you know, and then my father, when I was really young, I in first grade, I went to a school called Uhuru Sasa. Now, Uhuru Sasa had the East. The East was um, uh, in Brooklyn, and it really was the start of the African Street Festival today. Mm-hmm. Yes. It was the start of a lot of the jazz greats that, that oh, there's so many, like, so many greats that have performed there. But anyway, I went to school there, so it was a, a black nationalist school. So I had really such a strong foundation in who I was and fight the power, so to speak. Yeah, probably. So okay. yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I was just like I wasn't afraid, like, and I was. I think my father always really wanted a boy because he raised us to think like as a man would as well early on so mm-hmm. we would understand the world and i think that helped us you know it, in a lot of ways it kept us um, level-headed it kept us taking our emotions out of a lot of things and it also taught us how to navigate in the landscape of the world and so i didn't go into things worrying about being a woman i just wanted to be the best that i could and there was no turning back for me once I committed to it. So it was like, this is going to, this is going to happen. You know, that was my attitude. Like this yeah. is going to happen if it's me against the world. And no one believed everyone thought I was crazy to do fashion in effect when I first started, because I got called for um, corrections. I got called for the fire department. You know, those were tests and considered good jobs. They still are, but I just signed that lease. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went for it. And I can I can remember one day my dad being on a train with me and we were carrying a roll of fabric from the fashion industry. So I remember he was he was, he was one right of those people there from the yeah, beginning. He was great. one of the only people I can remember that was like, go for it. That's what you really want to do. Yeah. So I it was it was difficult, though. Let me not downplay it like being a woman was not hard. It was really hard, but I think it helped that I wasn't thinking about it too much, if that makes sense. Yes. You're focused on the goal. A word that gets thrown around a lot right now, and I'm going to reference because you got a picture behind you, Iron Mike Tyson, mm-hmm. those influencers. How do you get your idea 
into the hands or the mouths of people who can then influence the rest of, of the world into and uh, maybe affect how people see your brand and see see your product. And you you were dressing some pretty famous people mm-hmm. uh, at that time. How did that come about? You got some big names. How did that happen? So all those big names weren't as big when I started. Uh, that helps. You have yeah. to you have to remember that. So like okay. you know, Mike was Mike. But like the majority of the other people were just starting out on their journey, just like me. So hip hop, hip hop was our North Star. And we were all following that. And I think it was pure passion that was leading us. So we said earlier, energy feeds energy. And so that was our energy. And we we gravitated towards wanting to support each other because of that energy. And yes. so, the, as they say, real recognizes real. We knew, like, I could tell artists that had it. You know, that was one gift I had early on. And, and I could also, and I think they recognized my passion and what I was doing and my respect for the culture and the art. Yes. And I don't think they would have worn it if it was whack. But the product, you know, I've always wanted the product to lead. And so quality was really important to me, making pieces that people felt good about wearing. And so that was my main thing, putting a smile on your face, you know, when you you got it and you put it on. And so once that happened, everything else was gravy. But I think that relationships are still king, so to speak. And that's how we built our business. I think that at that moment, we knew we couldn't compete with a Tommy Hilfiger or a Ralph Lauren because we didn't have those advertising budgets and we couldn't put a billboard in Times Square, but we knew something they didn't. We were the culture. We were in the clubs at night. We knew who was bubbling on the streets. You know, whether it was a hood star or whether it was an up and coming artist that was on the cusp. And so we knew how to go up to them in a club and introduce ourselves and say, hey, you know, I'm April and you need to check out this stuff we have because we got some heat, you know. Yes. And it was that simple back then. And so I remember the first time I met Biggie, he was 15 years old and he walked into fashion in effect. And he was this little round kid that I used to see all the time at the train station on Fulton in Washington. And he was always with his crew. I knew some of the crew, but we'd just always go like that and keep going. I didn't know him. But that day I had an airbrush Eric B. and Rakim shirt in the window and it stopped him in his tracks. And that was the beginning of our relationship because he came in, he asked about it. He looked around this little hole in the wall that was, you know, our shop, our very humble beginnings. Yes. And it struck a conversation. And when you came into fashion, in effect, to the right, it, there was a wall and everybody, it had a big dog painted on the wall with a, with a hat that said FIE. And then a big clock that said, don't believe the hype and like with gold teeth. And uh-huh. then it, and then around it, every customer had to tag their name. So the whole wall was tagged. 
And so he got it right away. Yes. Oh man, you know? where's that wall? What'd you do with that I wall? Know. What are those tags? I at? know. <laughs> I have some pictures here and there, but yeah. So that was a moment in time. But that 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 right there was the confirmation, and then we got to talking, and that's how that relationship started. Yes. Um, I can remember the first time I met Tupac. I believe it was, I was styling a group called, I had a styling company too. Styling was a division that we did. And sometimes we would put walk wear in it. Sometimes it was just styling. But a group we worked with was off of No Face Records, which was a division of Def Jam. And they were out of Queens, the founders. And the group was called BWP, Bitches with Problems. And we managed, I mean, we were stop, we were styling them. And he came on set with Stretch and Ed Lover, I think. And that was one time I saw him. Then I saw him somewhere else. And so I, I actually built that relationship when he was still working with Digital Underground. That was the beginning, you know, and then He's watching me make stuff for Run DMC and all these different people. And that's how that relationship started. And I started styling him. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So it was very much at the very beginning of time. But, you know, now we have the Internet, right? We didn't have that then. Yes. So it was word of mouth was our Internet. And I think being credibility was everything. The soul was real. You had to have the proof. I can. I, I heard a podcast recent. It wasn't too long ago, but it was a podcast that Positive K did, and he was talking about. I think Positive K might have been in. I don't know if he's from D.C. or he was in D.C., but he said he saw Jay Z. And my father was still working with Jay at that time, and he said he was Positive K was telling Jay he was coming to New York to do a video, and he said, "When you go, you need to see this girl named April Walker. She's making some heat, yada yada." And that's how I got to do Positive K's video. I never knew that story till now. Like you know, so that's what we talk about with word of mouth and. And so, and, and then treating people nice. Yes. I really think that if you're listening to this creatives, you know, what we do is not rocket science. It's really not. It's, it's our goal. It's our love. We love what we do. And that's great. We're, we're, get, we're using our gifts, but we're, we're not saving the planet, so to speak. So just remember that and be kind to people, you know? And if you're saving the planet, you should be kind to people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you that's know? Right. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, just don't take yourself too serious. That's, that's all I'm trying to say. Remember, we're human first. So I think in that way, my ancestors, my grandparents, um, and my parents, I'm thankful that they raised me that way because that built lifelong relationships that I'm still so grateful for because those were the moments that matter now. It's an incredible story. And obviously you're going to have tremendous amount of success. The, it gets, starts to get oversaturated at some point. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that moment and then maybe bring it to, to where things are now. But tell me about with that because you had an amazing idea you helped create a culture. You weren't just part of it. You were creating it with the, with the clothes. And then, and then a lot of people come in because that culture starts to take over the world, frankly. Tell me a little bit about that and, and how you were able to survive and then what, how, how, what made you decide to end Walker Wear at, at that moment in time? 
I think with any real and true form of self-expression in art, when corporate America figures out how they can make money off of it, it becomes diluted, it becomes bastardized, and really can you find any true form or trace of what originated, mm. you know? Um, except if you're a purist or, you know, they're still there, but it's just the commercial world overpowers because this is all about dollars, our, our America, you know? So that's what happened. And I wasn't really prepared for that because I really was in it for the passion. Yes, I wanted to make money. You know, it wasn't a hobby, but I cared about the culture and the people. I still believe in people over profit, you know? So it's it's a hard tug of war to be an entrepreneur, to be an artist and to, to have that, right? Yes, and it's yes. a big responsibility and it's a fine line we walk. And I still, I think I'm a lot more experienced now, a wiser, but I still have that battle. You know, that's what it was watching it actually happen before my eyes, coming from buyers that had no clue of what to buy. And I literally would write their orders because they didn't know our hoods to having buyers tell me, you need to change this and you need to change that. And if you want me to give you this order, you need to do this. And they still didn't have a clue, but that now was about a, a numbers game. And so, you know, those kind of things. And, and just, oh, I could give you a laundry list. I think that it became oversaturated because a lot of people didn't understand the business. So you can't sell your product to 10 stores on one block. You can't yeah, yeah. because what's going to happen is you're going to kill your brand. Yes. People like aspiration and they want something that everyone doesn't have. So, you know, a lot of people didn't think that far because we were really just creating. And so they got sold on like the hype. And I think that the right hype has to meet substance. And I really won't, I'm going to reverse this. I believe that substance comes before hype, right? Yeah. And so if you keep that bar high, you're never going to let the hype supersede the substance. And so that's what happened. It really, right. It took, it took precedence over everything in a big way. And that's what we started selling. I'm talking about urban fashion. And so as a result, people that were real designers had, that had real quality, that had real design aesthetic that were in it for years, started being overpowered by these brands that were like one hit it and quit it because it had a name behind it, but they didn't take it serious. So I'm watching the, the, the disseminate, I'm watching the actual business crumble before my eyes and I see the rise and, and the fall happening, but people were too distracted in the numbers and what, you know, the bling bling and whatever else. And, and, and this isn't jab. I think that as designers, a lot of us were too young when we started, right. they started very early on. They didn't, and we didn't pay attention to the business. On the other hand, 
the, the business was paying attention to the business and they were watching the formula. They were getting the formula. They were understanding the formula and they were less and less. No, you don't come in the boardroom. You go ahead. You stay creative. We got this, you yes. know, and we weren't intentional about learning the business and getting on those planes and going to see those factories. And I'm generalizing with we because I've always pretty much been independent and like own your trademarks, do this, do that, you know. But um, there weren't enough of us to pull together early enough to form and, and have a group of collective economics, which I think would have been a game changer for us and have these meetings to say, guys, when they tell you to sell 10 stores on every block, say no. You know, we didn't we didn't have enough of that communication going on. Yeah, these are these are big lessons. I think it's just such an important thing. The creators need to stay involved in every part of it. You don't have to be, I'm a big believer in it. You don't have to be a genius at the money. Right. You got to understand the money. Absolutely. You have to be a genius at the distribution. Just got to understand the distribution. And, Agreed. Um, and, and the other one is businesses built on substance and authenticity, which yours was and is, can be, frankly, can be hard to scale at some point. Absolutely. To keep that authenticity, 100%. it's pretty hard to be in every like it in is. all ten stores. So, it is, you know, it's yeah. a decision we all have to make, and there's no judgment on any side. You know, if you want to go and you want to be the skyscraper, I get it. I just I made decisions that made me sleep better at night. Yes. Yeah, and it motivated you. And it like motivated story, me, and I exciting. still get to do what I love, so I'm good. So I'd love to, in this moment in time, something that I know now when I look at your story and what you're up to now, you, you give back a lot. You write, you write about it, you teach. I'd love to hear what, what, what motivates you to do that and why that's an important to you. That's, it sure looks like you're spending a lot of time with high school students and like, you know, your time is valuable and you're choosing to give it uh, that way. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Well, I'm very aware that I've had a very privileged life in a pinch me life. And I look and I'm very, I'm spiritual. I believe in God. I believe in a higher power. I believe we're all here for a purpose and a plan. So my thing is fulfilling that purpose, right? He didn't give me all this experience to put in the grave with me. So that's the first thing. I think that when I look at my past, Tony Shellman, who started Mecca and Aniche and Parish Nation, he was my first sales rep, you know? So he started Mecca because at a certain point we were bumping heads so much. I was like, Tony, just go start your own company. You're ready. You know? <laughs> yeah. We're friends to this day. We're yeah. doing a partnership production deal right now, you know? So I'm looking at like Danny Shaw, who was my first he was like bad news bears kid in East Flatbush. <laughs> and I was like, before you get in trouble, he had the gift of gab, come over here with me. He yeah. ended up being my assistant, selling, learning the thing. He went on to start two $30 million fashion companies, you know? So, I mean, the blueprint just kept happening like that. And they came back like, I learned more with you than I did in this whole business and stuff. So at a certain point, you realize, I say this, that success, and I've heard it before, success is like a butterfly, right? It's elusive. It's like chasing it and you'll 
never catch it because it always changes if you're changing. Mm. I'm so thankful and grateful for the experiences, but now it's not enough to just fill up my own cup. I'm in overflow and I'm so grateful and I just want to like help other people with what I have. And that what I have is experience. I have access. I have resources. You know, I want to see my communities thrive. You know, that's really important to me, helping to create a healthier ecosystem. You know, I think that small businesses, I know what that takes because I was one. I still am one. I know how you put your sweat equity, your heart, your soul, your dreams, blood, sweat, and tears. And so, you know, I know what that's like. I want to see us all win because we're stronger together. I truly believe that. So, you know, it's that simple. Like, and I know what it was to be that kid in bed star and against the grain and feel like nobody is listening to you. So I just want the kids to know I see you. You know, you have it. I think if enough of us would have got that early on, it's a game changer. Everything else can get figured out. But the confidence part, like you have to believe that it's possible. You just have to believe. And if you don't have anything or anything in your environment that's telling you different or our system, period, this American system, typically it's changing now, not fast enough, but it teaches us about getting good jobs in careers. It doesn't teach us about being the best creators, what we can ideate, what we can manifest, what we can become and thinking, dreaming as big as you can. You know, all of those reasons are why I do what I do. Those are beautiful reasons. (laughs) Thank you. You know, it was incredible to get to talk to April for such a long time and go over her career. I think one of the things that I find most interesting and inspiring about her is how she took in all of the influences. I love that she said in the conversation, she was a sponge. Everything around her, she was curious about, soaked in, and then used in her own way, put it through her own creative process to create something that no one else could create and see, uh, have a vision that nobody else had. You know, I've been thinking a little bit about a creative career. And when you think about the ladder you climb through the process of a creative career, it really needs to start in your craft. And so she did that, really understanding the basic craft of the thing that you're making. And then maybe once you've got that, you kind of ascend a little bit to understanding strategy, how you take that craft and the strategy uh, that you need to implement it in the right way. Maybe once you've mastered that, you ascend to leadership because you've got those two things and you can help lead other people in doing it. Uh, you do that long enough, you send to influence. And when you're in influence, that's your, you're beyond leadership. You're influencing much bigger than the group that you're uh, maybe sitting over. You're influencing maybe the whole industry. And then I think the ultimate place is wisdom. And through this conversation, that's really where I feel April's sitting. She's sitting in wisdom. Through her work at Parsons, this year she's given away more scholarships. And her audiobook Walker Gems, will be out later this year as well. To learn even more about April, visit her website, IamAprilWalker.com, or on Instagram with the same handle. You can check out the latest fashions from WalkerWear at WalkerWear.com and on Instagram. Fresh Dressed, the documentary April's featured in, can be found on Amazon Prime Video, as well as the remix, Hip Hop and Fashion, which is available on Netflix. This week, we'd like to thank April again for her time and give a special thanks to the guys at Spliff Uno for helping to connect us with April. If you'd like to hear how other creators, founders, and inventors thought up their ideas, follow this podcast wherever you listen. 
catch up on all past episodes and get ready. We have even more inspiring and influential guests coming up on the season, so you won't want to miss them. Feel free to reach out to us with questions and comments on Gray's social channels or our email address, podcasts at gray.com. And lastly, tell a friend about our show and help us share these great ideas. Thanks for listening to Gray Matter. Gray Matter is hosted by John Petrullis, produced by Danielle Hunt and senior producer Joey Scarillo, mixed by Guy Rosemarin at Gramercy Park Studios with post-production support from Ned Martin and Robin Frank. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, Gigi Vera, Gabby Piatek, Erica Vander, and Ryan Cunningham. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.